You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to SEPCON 95, the first annual conference of the Separation of School and State Alliance, held November 10, 11, and 12, 1995 in Arlington, Virginia. This presentation is copyrighted by the Separation Alliance, and permission is hereby granted if you would like to make gift copies for friends. In this particular conference, the debate is on the issue of tax-funded vouchers. The background for this is that the typical debate on the tax-funded voucher issue is between those who want them, claiming that they will improve freedom in education, and those who don't, coming from typically a public school defense position, um, the NEA, the AFT, and the teachers who say vouchers are harmful for all of these various reasons. Those people are not here present today. This is an intra-separation of school and state, intra-movement debate between two sides, all of whom have the same ultimate goal. All four of your debaters and your moderator have the goal of the full separation of the school and state. But they see two different ways of getting there. Joe Bass and Dave Harmer see the voucher as a legitimate and might say might even say a necessary stepping stone between where we are today and where we want to be. Doug Dewey and Candace Allen say, ah, oh, contraire. Uh, it is not a slipping st stepping stone. It's some sort of a slippery moss-covered rock, and if we jump to it, we'll land on our keister. So this is the debate, and the way it's framed, the official title of the debate is, who's got the res uh, can you, Candace, can you hand me that? Why would I walk up here without the, uh, well, actually, why would, I not, why would I steal Rick Henderson, our moderator's thunder, let him stipulate the, uh, the uh, yeas and nays? So uh, Rick Henderson is our, um, our moderator. Rick is a uh, editor, the Washington editor for Reason Magazine. Uh, he is um, personally, uh, I believe, uh, ambivalent on the issue of vouchers, and from that Per reason and also because of his uh, honorableness, he will, should make an excellent moderator for us. Uh, Joe Bast is the president of the Heartland Institute and one of the most prolific advocates and writers in favor of vouchers. Uh, David Harmer is the uh, author of School Choice, a book back yonder, and one of the main participants in the Proposition 174 California campaign in 1993. Candace Allen is a uh, school has been a school teacher for 22 years. Has just now moved to uh, University of Southern Colorado, but for a long time she was a voucher advocate decided that was inappropriate and uh, is willing to now speak to that from a teacher standpoint. And Douglas Dewey at the Washington uh, Scholarship Fund and the National Scholarship Center uh, has uh, also uh, recanted his earlier support of vouchers when he was with the Department of Education and now thinks that they are not a particularly good stepping stone. Uh, let me introduce then and ask to run this entire show, Rick Henderson from Reason Magazine. Please welcome Rick. Thanks very much, Marshall. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Separation of School and State Alliance Conferences Debate on Tax-Funded Education Vouchers. Try saying that several times fast. I am Rick Henderson. I'm the Washington editor of Reason Magazine, which is a monthly journal of analysis and commentary, which is published by the Reason Foundation in Los Angeles. And Marshall has given us a good preface to this debate, and let me talk about it just a bit more before we get started and also explain the format as well. The topic is resolved. Tax-funded education vouchers will impede separation of school and state. 
This will not become, we hope, a debate about the ways California's Proposition 174 might have been better worded, or whether tax-funded vouchers would violate the Religious Establishment Clause of the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Each of our four debaters, and myself, support the separation of school and state. Each wants to terminate the government's monopoly on public schools. They disagree, however, on how we get from here to there. And this will be what we talk about. The debate today is not about ends, but about means. And before we begin this debate, uh, let me explain the format. Beginning with the opening statement, each side will get 10 minutes to make its opening presentation. Then the second speaker on each side will get 10 minutes as well. Then we'll change things around a little bit, because what will happen then is that the first speaker on each side will then get three minutes to rebut. Then we're going to go directly to question and answers for about 30 minutes. And then the second speaker on each side will have up to three minutes to give a closing statement. And we'll end the question and answer, we'll end the question and answer session sharp so that we do have enough time to get this inside the 90-minute uh, period. And let me give you a brief introductions of the person. Marshall has also uh, given uh, brief biographies. I tell you what, I will skip that to give us more time for the debate. You can see the biographies inside your packet. So we will start with the affirmative that tax-funded vouchers would violate or would impede, excuse me, separation of school and state. And beginning that position is Candace Allen. I'm nervous. I'm not sure why. I think I needed to have someone teach me some relaxation techniques ahead of time. I'm not sure why I'm nervous today. Uh, maybe it's because I'm not used to speaking to groups about this subject. Um, you could say I've just recently come out of the closet um, and, and owned up to what I'm all about. My mom is 15 and a half years older than I. She had an eighth grade education. One of the things she taught me that I really value to show you what young wisdom she had, was that you have to try as hard as you can in life. You have to fight. You can't just give in. You can't just sit back and, as she would say, do nothing. And I'm grateful to her. But what she didn't tell me, and what we all have to learn, is that you can't do everything well. You can't do everything because you have to choose. It's this thing called scarcity. There's only so much time you have. And you can't do everything you want to do every given moment, so you have to make choices. And since you have to choose, you have to give something up. And that's what the real cost of things are. It's what you give up, the opportunity cost, we call it. Opportunity cost is when you give up what you could have been doing. You choose one thing, and you don't choose another. And this is what our debate's really about today. It hinges on this. The negative team is going to say, that we must actively support vouchers and we should try as hard as we can, as my mama would say, as an interim step. This will get us there. This will be the step to separation of school and state. They'll say that if we don't support vouchers, it'll mean more years of government education as we know it. Now, Doug and I, the affirmative, are saying that if we choose to give support to vouchers, we'll be giving up too much. And what we're going to contend today, that what we're going to give up, the too much of, is the highest value that we all agree upon. And that is family responsibility and education. Indeed, it is true that the costs of something are always born in the future. And Douglas and I are going to contend today that vouchers will impede the eventual separation of school and state. If we support vouchers, 
it's going to cost us in the future. Okay, today I'd like to do three things. I want to talk about the big value, that which we all share. I'd like to talk about something that gets in the way of us realizing the value in our educational system, and that is what I'm going to call the entitlement mentality. And then thirdly, I'll talk about, well, what if we did do vouchers? What's it going to cost us? The big value. What is the big value? That which we all share. I believe it's the freedom to be responsible as parents and individuals for individual choice. And inherent in this freedom, inherent, is that parents will get to choose where, how, how much, how often, and if at all, their children should be schooled, and how much they're going to pay. Parents and individuals have the responsibility to educate in whatever ways they deem necessary and important. This is also dependent upon something else that goes right hand in hand with it, and that is that it be non-compulsory. The how much and if and when, nobody should be made to, to send their kids to school if they don't want to. And that's the core value that we're going to try to look at today. And so the measure of that is, if we have vouchers, if you employ a voucher system, will it indeed, will it indeed bring the highest value forth? Now clearly what we could do is just get rid of taxes that are spent in education. We could stop playing that game with Washington where we send them a whole bunch of money and then we beg and cry and, and ask back for some of it, maybe in terms of vouchers, which, by the way, would be a whole lot less than what we pay in in taxes. And, and secondly, that we would get rid of compulsory education. But what stands in the way of us achieving our highest value? Douglas and I are going to claim today that it's the mentality of the entitlement philosophy, the entitlement mentality that keeps the majority of folks bound tightly, snugly, and safely in the straitjacket of the way things are. And I'm going to use the word entitlement here as something that has been granted by an authority. It implies recipiency of privilege, it implies passivity. It's something that should be given and therefore received. Something that is owed. You owe me because it's my entitlement. I am entitled to a free education. It's something that is promised. And when something is owed and promised, you can bet there'll be someone there to give it and to say, we owe it to you. I owe it to you to give your child the education that she deserves. And you are the passive agent. Let me contrast that with the word right, because an entitlement is not a right. Entitlement in, implies action. If I am free, I am free to do something, to speak, to spend my money, to go where I want. If there's an action there. I'm I am free to educate my children. I am free to do something. And entitlement doesn't free you to do anything at all. It frees you for two things. One, either to give it to someone, as promised and owed, or to receive it. One is passive, the other is active. One implies sitting down, and the other implies standing up. 
When one has the right to do something, only then can one be responsible, response-able, able to respond. And the more you have freedom to do, the more able you are to respond as opposed to react. And that's what we're all about. Now, today I thought, before I, actually, I changed my speech a little bit here, my, my remarks, I thought about introducing myself today as is done in a 12-step program of recovery. So I'll do that right now. Hi, my name is Candace, and I'm a recovering government edgeholic. <laughs> now, I'm not joking. I, I say recovering because I, like all of us, like all of us, and our parents, and our parents' parents, and their parents, and probably their parents, if you're like my parents and had lots of kids quick, you've grown up in a system of educational entitlement. We're addicted. We're habituated. And as the first step in any of the 12-step program recovery goes, I am powerless over my dependency. I am. Just try. When you're an educrat, I've taught for 22 years, actually 23, when, when you say, I'm not an educrat anymore, I'm not, I'm going to act as if parents are paying me. You can drain out of your head. You can put a little hole there and kind of drain it out. All the stuff that's in there. But the problem is, nothing else is left. And that's the truth. You don't know how to think and act because you're habituated. You're so used to doing it one way. All of us are addicted. All of us are habituated. So the big obstacle in change, what keeps us from having school and state separated soon, is the entitlement mentality. And I can't quit this entitlement mentality stuff. I've got to, I have to talk just a little bit more about it because it's complicated. You see, remember I said that when you're entitled, it, imply, it implies that something, someone is going to be bestowing. So there's two components here. There's, and there are two attitudes that go along with those components. The first one, the first attitude is compliance, and the second attitude is arrogance. The attitude of compliance is on the part of parents and kids. When you have an entitlement mentality, it doesn't matter how self-assured you are, how good you are at your business. When you walk into your kid's school because he's in trouble, you get nervous. Because you have to face the teacher. And generally, and I faced, I faced this not long ago, my son is uh, 13, well, he's 14, and he is no longer in a private school. He's in a, his first year of public school, and he, he got in trouble. So I had to go in, and here, and I, I remember, I'm a teacher, so I, I'm used to being on the other end. So here, here's this circle of friends, the teachers, and I'm nervous. I'm scared because I know if I say what I really think, Aaron is going to suffer. It doesn't matter how self-confident I am in the classroom. It doesn't matter how what a fine, upstanding citizen I am and how self-assured I am. It doesn't matter when I'm in that school situation. If any of you have ever been there, you know what I mean. That can't be 10 minutes. <laughs> then I, you know what? I'm going to give up, because I, I have to finish this. I'm, I'll, I'll talk fast, but I'm going to give up my cross-ex time. If you all forgive me, that is an entitlement. I'm entitled to that five minutes. So I'm going to ask you if I can please use it now, because this is too important to quit now. I'll stop giving all these examples, because I just kind of add this as I go along. 
Okay, the other attitude is, uh, is compliance, or is the arrogance. And as a bestower of your child's education, I have spent many long, hard years preparing for this. I have been through the schools of education. I have my master's degree in, in education. I know all the current fads and fancies to education reform. I know it. And I'm going to help you have your child get what he deserves. And I'm the one that decides. And there's a certain arrogance. Thomas Sowell calls it being one of the anointed, one of the chosen. Once you start choosing for other people, you really begin to feel that you know best. And it's real. And it's scary. Now, finally, I said I'd talk about two things with the entitlement mentality, the blend of compliance and arrogance, and and that puts folks in a deadlock of power. The entitlement mentality is held firmly in place by the belief that government can be a caregiver and should be a caregiver. And when something goes wrong in the caregiving system, the government can fix it. And that's the kingpin. That is what the both the compliant and the arrogant believe, and that is our challenge. And today, we will hear from the negative team a little bit of that, because underneath it all is that belief that somehow the government can do it. Most people hold an entitlement mentality, and those of us who are recovering now seek to look at education as freedom to act and to do. Now, if we did have vouchers, um, we would have, we would, if we did have vouchers, it was going to cost us too much. I'm going to kind of, going to kind of rush through this. If we did have vouchers, what would happen is this. The government educational monopoly is made up of organized special interests that dominate the unorganized interests of the general public. And vouchers appear to be the way of organizing these unorganized interests out there. And that means all the folks on the compliant end of things have a voice. Wrong. Because what happens is, vouchers will have to be implemented politically through the political process. And what that means is, the argument in favor of vouchers points to a fundamental problem with implementation. So what's going to happen is, parents and kids will turn into into um, entitlees more will because more more schools will go more kids will go into government schools as entitlements are given to those parents who are now are choosing not to i'm going to have to quit stop it here i swear i this when i did this before it was about 11 minutes or so but you know (laughs) sorry that's right thank you We need a hook. I mean, we need or a trap door or something. But anyway, nonetheless, <laughs> uh, Joe Bass. Well, I think Candace maybe ate into her Q and A and also into whatever uh, Doug might have been able, whatever time Doug might have had. Um, since, but that's fine. I thought you gave a fantastic presentation. I think it was really interesting. Um, since it wasn't mentioned in the introduction or in the program, I think I, I'm honor bound to tell you I have not signed the proclamation for the separation of school and state, and I'm not going to sign it because I think Marshall Fritz has chosen to make an, the anti-voucher argument an essential part of this organization. And so long as that's the case, I can't participate, I can't endorse it, and I can't recommend that anybody else do so. I think Candace makes a very strong case for the separation of school and state. Um, All of her talk about uh, the welfare mentality and entitlement, addiction, I think that's all right on. And I think that's why the goal has to be a complete separation of school and state. But I don't think she makes a credible argument against vouchers. Very little of what she says has anything to do with the workability or the necessity 
of a plan of action for getting from where we currently are to where we need to be. So in my comments, I'm going to focus on three things in defense of vouchers. First, that vouchers are not a new entitlement program. Secondly, that increased regulation of private schools is not inevitable. It's not the inevitable consequence of a voucher program. And third, that vouchers are the surest and only path toward complete separation that they put in place a series of activities and changes that lead to, necessarily lead to, complete separation of school and state. First of all, vouchers are not a new entitlement. Obviously, parents who currently send their kids to private schools are already entitled to educate their children at public expense. Okay, the entitlement is already there. The question is whether they're going to take advantage of that entitlement program. And right now, they're not. Now, that is an injustice. And as a libertarian, I get very agitated about something like that. The situation is similar to if every time you used UPS, you were required to also pay the post office for the post office's uh, services that you chose not to use. Okay? And in fact, if you follow this stuff, if you have a business, you know that the post office is actually going in auditing some company's use of UPS and then trying to get them to pay the post office for when they shouldn't have used UPS, when first-class mail would have done a better job. Now, I think we're all absolutely, you know, offended by that. I mean, that's outrageous. The post office thinks it has a right to your money, a right to mail your letters. And in fact, they don't. UPS has a better job and it's free. But the same thing happens in education. And some libertarians don't stand up and protest it. It's exactly the same thing. When we choose to use a private school, we still have to pay for the public school that we chose not to use. That's an injustice because we have to pay twice for the education of our children, and it's also a serious deterrent to any other parents participating, moving out of the public system into the private system. And that's why the percentage of students in the United States who attend private schools has been stuck at about 12% since the 1950s. Okay, it's not growing. You're not seeing a flight from, from poor quality schools into good quality schools. It's not an answer to say, well, eventually private schools will expand and take the place of public schools. It hasn't happened. It's not happening right now. It's not in the trend. Okay, so it's unjust. It's a severe disincentive. Liberals don't have a problem with that. They like the fact that it's a disincentive. I mean, that's, that's how they protect their monopoly. They also think that all of the money that you and I earn actually belongs to the government, and we have to petition to get it back. Now, we think that's pretty absurd. It's really disappointing for some libertarians to embrace that doctrine and say that voucher advocates think that people don't actually own their own money that the money I pay in taxes isn't my money. I shouldn't be able to get that back if I choose to educate my children in a private school. Now, the second argument is increased regulation of private schools is, is not the inevitable consequence of vouchers. Vouchers were chosen by libertarians and conservatives as the vehicle for privatizing education precisely because they make regulation so difficult. An alternative is just contracting out. That's essentially what charter schools are. We know from experience with contracting out that you can save between one-half and 50% just by having a private company come in and do it. We would get a significant improvement in the quality of education, probably an increase in the variety and innovation. But we don't accept that step. That's too small a step, and we're afraid of government regulation of something as essential and important as education. So we go another step. We take a more radical type of privatization, which is vouchers. By the money flowing into the hands of parents instead of directly in the schools, there is no contract between the government and the school. Contract is between the government and the parent. The parent then is free to choose what school, what organization he contracts with. Now we've got successful examples of vouchers that haven't led to increased regulation of the recipients. Food stamps is a good example. There are no increased regulations on grocery stores because we give the poor food stamps. Housing is an example. Increasingly now we're getting government out of the business of building and owning housing and instead just giving a voucher to the a low-income person, that person then goes out and buys uh, housing in the private market. 
two examples where vouchers have not led to increased regulation of the private sector uh, companies. Now, you might ask, why is it? What is it about vouchers that somehow preclude or discourage uh, the encroachment of regulation? The major one is you build a, co a constituency with a voucher program for less regulation. If I get a voucher for education, the value of that voucher is reduced if the more restrictions are put on it. Every person who qualifies for the voucher then has a, an incentive, a reason himself, to oppose increased restrictions on where he can cash in that voucher. So you create a countervailing force against the forces of regulation and producers, and as a result, uh, you know, you get less regulations. And finally, we've got an advantage with the voucher movement in that the Supreme Court has ruled that vouchers are okay for education so long as we don't have excessive entanglement with the private schools that participate, with the religious schools that participate, okay, for constitutional reasons. Now, that actually creates a protection for all private schools that participate in voucher programs because about 80% of all the private schools are religious. If a voucher program is going to be meaningful, it has to include religious schools. So you have a voucher program that includes religious schools, that restricts regulation so that it's not excessive entanglement. If it goes into court, you end up winning because the court strikes down regulations that constitute excessive regulation. Okay, so it's an advantage that we have constitutionally that limits the amount of regulation that can follow from a voucher program. Now, if this is true, how come you hear over and over again from Marshall Fritz and from Dwight Lee and from all these guys that he who pays the piper names the tune, Regulation is inevitable. I have only one answer. I think it's dogma. I think it's absolute dogma. Over and over again, we've been told this the same thing, and it's reached the point, I mean, the argument's been made since the 1950s, that we no longer need to enforce it with any evidence, any real analysis of a voucher program. All you have to do is assert it. I mean, if you read Dwight Lee's essay in The Freeman, you know, and all the articles against vouchers, I think, have been published in The Freeman, all you see is the assertion with no proof, no evidence, no reasoning, that regulation must necessarily follow any type of involvement, even if it's dramatically less than what we currently have. Regulation necessarily follows. I would recommend that everybody in this room read or reread two essays by Ludwig von Mises. One is titled Trends Can Change, and the second is Political Chances of Genuine Liberation. Both of them appear in Planning for Freedom. Very short essays. Absolutely to the point. The first one, Trends Can Change, criticizes Marxists and Hegelians for claiming that trends can never change, that more government is inevitable, and that any effort to change that is doomed to failure. Doesn't that sound familiar? I mean, that's the anti-voucher separationist argument. There's nothing we can do to keep government from taking over the schools. We're paralyzed. Better to have a system that's 88% socialist than a system that might possibly lead to increased regulations on the 12% that's pseudo-free right now. Okay? Mises specifically criticizes that. In the second essay political chances for genuine liberalism, he criticizes conservatives and libertarians for being too pessimistic. He says that we underestimate the intelligence and judgment of the common person. We assume that the classical liberal message can't be communicated to people, that it's just too complicated for the general population to know. And he says that's absolutely nonsense. He says the classical liberal argument is not hard to communicate, that once people understand it, they can make their own decisions about it and that libertarians and conservatives are being very patronistic if they assume that everybody is too stupid to understand that if they take a voucher from government, for example, that there might be regulations on it, or that they're too stupid and hopeless to lobby against increased regulations on their voucher. So one of the profound problems, I think, with the anti-voucher movement is that it has such a low regard for the average public that it, that it assumes that people aren't as smart as we are, aren't as clever as we are, will make the wrong decision. In fact, uh, no less authority than Ludwig von Mises tells us that that's a wrong assumption, that we should be prepared to trust people to make their own decision about whether or not a voucher is worth possible restrictions on uh, the schools that participate. And finally, vouchers are the surest and maybe the only path to complete separation. 
I think if you want to take apart a public sector monopoly, best thing to do is talk to somebody who has experience doing that already. There's a guy who has. His name is Madsen Peary. He's the head of the Adam Smith Institute in Washington, D.C. He was a key person in taking apart billions of dollars of public sector enterprises in Britain. Okay, and what does he say about how to take it apart? He says, how you do it is every bit as important as simply making the decision to do it. Ignore this simple advice, and even the most sensible plan will remain forever on the drawing board. When dismantling a bomb, it is necessary to identify and neutralize various detonators. Okay? Public education is a bomb that we're trying to take apart, that we're trying to uh, you know, prevent from blowing up. And we're not going to do it just by sitting in a room like this and talking about... This is the end of side one. Side two is queued up. choice and freedom. And unfortunately, like Candace, I probably got 10 more minutes <laughs> worth of talking. Unlike Candace, I'm not going to do that because I have a terrific debate partner, David, who's going to make all these arguments in his second presentation. Thank you. Thanks very much, Joe. And now, Doug Dewey. Since I switched my opinion about vouchers some three years ago, I found a number of ways to argue the case against them, including from an economic basis, uh, historical, political, religious, and just plain common sense. <clears throat> but the strongest case by far is also the one which best fits the context of this historic conference, namely that vouchers are wrong for the same reason that government schooling is wrong. I will show how my antagonism to vouchers is an extension of my opposition to government schooling. First, I'll explain why I oppose government schooling and provide a simple definition thereof. Then I'll show that vouchers embrace and expand the central flaw of government schooling. Now, I have a hunch that most of us here uh, are entertaining some doubts about the government's role in education. Uh, let me state, since I didn't really have time yesterday with the mic, having been have it foisted on me <coughs> with 20 seconds, why I am here, beginning in the negative. I'm not here because of low test scores. I don't go to low test score conferences anymore. For that matter, I'm not here because I'm outraged by the infamous history standards, or because I'm alarmed by the agenda of Goals 2000, or because I want to see the restoration of phonics, or because I oppose bilingual education, or because I abhor the Prussian model of state school monopoly that our country adopted so long ago. I'm not here to fight the scandal of sex education. I'm not even here because children are routinely murdered, maimed, and otherwise preyed upon in the government schools. And I'm not even here, finally, because God has been excluded and denied by the government schools. I'm here because government schooling exists. The low test scores and violence are to government schooling what food shortages and corruption are to Soviet collective farming. Inevitable. Being against government schooling because the results are appalling is like being against murder because it causes a cadaver. Yes, that's what murder does, but it's not what murder is. If it were only the result of murder that we found abhorrent, then an unreported murder would not constitute a murder. Nor would any circumstance where the body went unrecovered. Nor would we press charges against uh, failed conspirators. And so on. It is the intent and consent of the will that we condemn. The reason we put a murderer behind bars is not ultimately because his victim is dead, but because he made a very bad choice. Now let me state why I think government schooling is a very bad choice. 
Parents have a positive, solemn, and sacred duty to instruct their children. This is firmly rooted in natural law, Christian tradition, and again, common sense. Civilization depends entirely on strong families. To the extent that families abnegate their duties and relinquish their rights, they are weakened, and so is civil society. To the extent that government either accepts or usurps those rights and duties which, are not, which do not properly belong to it, such a government exceeds its legitimate authority and becomes tyrannical. Weak families do a poor job of resisting arrogant tyrannies, by the way. How do we define government education? The same way we would classify any other good or service. We determine who the owners are. Those who control the means of production, which is to say the capital, are the owners. Under the conditions of socialism, the state controls the means of production for everything, from farming to mining to schooling to entertainment to religion, even procreation itself, as we see in communist China. The state is omnipotent, the individual of little account, the family even less. In mining or farming, capital consists of owning lands, for the wealth produced he here is in and from the land. Since education is not a good but a service, the means of production consists primarily of owning the costs of service delivery. Ownership is control. It is because the government owns the means of producing education that it can compel attendance and control curricula. Everything about the education monopoly we dread is a manifestation of the government's funding monopoly. Think of funding as a stand-in for property here. And John Locke used property as a synonym for liberty. And one last point. Remember that government doesn't have any of its own money. So when we speak of government funding of education, we are referring to another fundamental injustice or bad choice called wealth redistribution. Distributing it just a little wider won't make it right, which brings us to vouchers, doesn't it? Let me begin again in the negative. I do not oppose vouchers because they will burden private schools with onerous regulations, nor because they will lead to the secularization of religious schools and the homogenization of private and alternative schools, weakened families, the expansion of the unions, increased costs, and yes, decreased test scores. Those are merely the inevitable results. Vouchers are wrong because they make the same bad choice as government schooling. They fully embrace the error of government funding for education. Recall that in education, funding is property. To carry out your duty as a parent, you must own the means to produce the education for your children, whether by contracting it out or doing it yourself. My wife and I homeschool, but we don't feel more responsible for our, chil our children's education than our friends who send their kids to the parish school. We're both equally owners of our children's education. We simply choose to be the providers as well, in a sense we pay ourselves. Just being a shopper, however, does not make you an owner. Just look at food stamps and housing vouchers. Nor does being a chooser make you an owner. I can give you, as my captive, six ways to die instead of one. But you're still equally doomed and equally unfree. I can designate you to a government feeding station to get fed at. I can give you a food, or I can give you a food stamp with a hundred stores and restaurants to choose from. In the first instance, you're a miserable dependent. In the second instance, you're a miserable dependent with an attitude. <laughs> After all, now you're empowered and can demand respect. Far from sowing independence, vouchers encourage dependence and will reap the same delusion and contempt as any other entitlement. So I think we've hit on the stumbling block for freedom-loving voucher proponents, which I believe, by the way, constitute a dwindling minority within that group. 
They mistake the trappings or appearances of a free market with the reality. Their hope is that by forcing some of the conditions of the market, such as parents choosing their children's schools, that an actual market might thereby arise. That's why we hear vouchers referred to as privatization. My esteemed debating partner, Candace Allen, calls this free market words hung on socialist grammar. Here is where voucher proponents begin to resemble Marxian utopians, who also promise that once the state owns everything and everyone has equal choices, the state will just melt away. Even if I like the first part, how does the melting happen and when will that begin? Milton Friedman hopes that vouchers will lead to the repeal of compulsory attendance laws and the elimination of all government funding for education. <clears throat> what is never explained is how we go from the 88% dependency to 100% dependency to zero. <laughs> by, now, by now, everyone must have heard Marshall Fritz's analogy of vouchers as two five-foot jumps over a 10-foot chasm. So here's the question I'll leave you to contemplate. How soon after vouchers are passed can we expect to see parents parents' groups formed, demanding a lower voucher. More than 700 years ago, St. Thomas Aquinas made an airtight case against doing evil, however small, to achieve a good, however great. Thank you. Quite a nonpartisan crowd here today, I must say. Now David Harmer. Thank you for that welcome. Thank you, Marshall, for this opportunity to uh, correct your errors. <laughs> Santayana defined a zealot as someone who, having forgotten his aim, redoubles his effort, a characterization which unfortunately but aptly describes the putative conservatives and libertarian opposing the efforts of those of us who are promoting vouchers as a means of fostering school choice and moving toward the separation of school and state. Decrying the mere improvement as the enemy of the ideal I believe that you have done more to thwart the separation of school and state than to promote it. I address my remarks to you. Those of us who have served on the front lines of the fight for school choice are working hard to limit and restrain the power of the state, to increase and expand the scope of authority and responsibility for parents, and most importantly of all, to rescue hope for some kids who are hurting. I never thought I'd see the day when you, our supposed allies, would become the handmaidens of the education establishment and the NEA in opposing these ends, but I've seen that day now. That is precisely what is happening. Your ideas must be judged by their results, not by their intentions. God alone can judge your motivations and your heart, and I leave that to him. But I can judge the political effect of what you're promoting, and it is not at all salutary. You criticize the first step in the right direction because it is not the ultimate destination, arguing with utter implausibility that in some glorious day to come we'll make that grand leap with no preparatory work. That's a prescription and an excuse for standing still. Meanwhile, the state expands. Meanwhile, kids suffer. These are real kids, our brothers and sisters. Let me tell you about one of them who I met earlier this week. Ian Jones came from a dysfunctional family, uh, indeed an abusive one. Although he truly wanted to learn, he was not able to do so because he came from a dysfunctional, indeed an abusive, public school. I choose those words carefully and they are accurate. Despite his great desire to learn, he suffered a little more than uh, frustration. He suffered physical danger and in part out of self-preservation, he dropped out of that school. He joined a gang, the closest he knew to a real family, and the closest he knew to safety. 
he witnessed four of his friends shot dead close by. He saw and did things that no young man should. Vouchers would help soon literally millions of kids like Ian. Vouchers would replace bad schools kids want to escape from with good schools kids want to escape to. And most importantly, vouchers offer the prospect of doing so within my lifetime. After decades of dedicated preparatory work, we see unprecedented opportunity to actually implement voucher systems in several states. You are loudly fighting these efforts, and you offer what in their place? Nothing. Nothing whatsoever. Oh, I know you'll say we offer separation, the ideal, in their place. Well, if I weren't a card-carrying Mormon, I would ask for a puff of whatever you're smoking. Your own poll shows that nationally, 26% of Americans agree with your aim. That, by the way, is before the massive and very well-funded negative campaign that would soon arise from the education establishment in the very unlikely event that you ever posed a realistic political threat to them. California's Proposition 174, I know from firsthand experience, stood at 66% approval, only a couple of short months before it lost by a margin of two to one. Let's move out of the dream world and into the real one. The new uh, state senator for this area is Patsy Tyser. I received an interesting uh, uh, communication from her through the mail recently. We need Patsy Tyser as our new state senator. Patsy knows that Governor Allen's plan to cut education is wrong, dead wrong. As our new state senator, Patsy Tyser won't let education be used as a political football for people who want to turn schools over to book burners, narrow extremists, and advocates for experimental charter schools and vouchers. Well, Patsy Tyser defeated a Republican incumbent by 58% to 42%, someone who had coasted to re-election in his two previous tries. My own campaign experience is full of come-from-behind victories. Uh, in the last election cycle, I became campaign manager for a congressional candidate whose negatives exceeded the negatives of the other two candidates combined, and she was in third place, behind the Democrat incumbent and behind a very wealthy independent. We moved from a distant third place in two months to a 10-point victory on election night. No small feat. I took on Proposition 174, understanding the realities of that situation. I'm here to tell you there's not a snowball's chance in hell that in my lifetime we're going to move from what we have now to our ideal of separation of school and state. So we better figure out what we do in the meantime. How do we save kids who are hurting? How do we prepare people so that they are politically willing to do what needs to be done to move towards separation of school and state? Did I say church and state a minute ago? Do, do I believe in the separation of school and state? I absolutely do, as an ultimate aim. Does that justify me in abandoning intermediate efforts until the great millennial day arrives? It most certainly does not. By the way, Ian Jones is now a uh, sophomore in college. He's working towards a degree in psychology. He is preparing to become a counselor to kids who are now where he was a short while ago. His grade point average is 4.0. What changed him? Fortunately, there was a private program that, uh, through which some caring people were able to rescue him. But how did he decide to take advantage of that? He tells the story, and uh, it warms your heart. His girlfriend got pregnant uh, when he was 17, but he decided to watch the birth of his son. And when that little boy came into the world, he sensed that it was his responsibility to provide for him a better upbringing than he had had. He tells of this miraculous experience and tells of his love for his child, and you cannot help but feeling a kinship and a brotherhood with Ian, knowing that what unites us is far more important than anything might divide us. I believe that the love of parents for their children is by far the strongest force in the world. It is, after all, perhaps the closest earthly reflection of God's love for us. Vouchers go a long, long way toward unleashing that love. They're a big step, in fact, the big step, toward ultimate separation. If philosophical purity or moral absolutism prevents you from supporting us, 
at the very least, cease opposing us. We're on the same side. Thanks to uh, David's brevity now, I'm allowed to be the good cop and actually allow everybody to get the rebuttal time. So you all did very well. Thank you. Uh, so Candace will now have three minutes, followed by Joe. Then we're going to open up for questions and answers. And then uh, Doug and David will do the closing statements. So Candace. We're going to split it up in that case, because I have a point I must make. Um, thank you. Uh, the, the, the central argument of both of the negative speakers is that uh, we don't have a plan and therefore our criticism is moot. If uh, Let's say we're both physicians and there's a sick patient with uh, which we're having no luck in curing. You come up with uh, something that you claim is a medicine, I know it's a poison. I tell you that, you say, well, you don't have a medicine, therefore mine is not a poison. So the fact that I don't have a plan has no bearing whatsoever on your case, which you still have failed to make. The second thing is, I do happen to have a plan, uh, and so does Marshall, and so do many others. Uh, and I can tick them off in one minute, just a few ideas, interim measures, that are already happening and that are very hopeful. Uh, conferences like this, unprecedented just a few years ago. The proclamation, the Sakharovs on Monday, media appearances, articles, letters, ch more chapters of the Separation Alliance, privately funded voucher programs, of which I happen to operate one, and which are now about... Uh, close to 10,000 children in America in schools as a result of it, of them. Alliances with taxpayer groups, libertarians, others fed up with big government, paratistas uh, should be forged. Uh, alliances with groups like educators in private practices, in private practice and other entrepreneurs like Edison could have been. Critical alliances with the Christian organizations like uh, Traditional Va Values Coalition, Christian Coalition and Focus on the Family. Get those people to stop fighting to have to allow children to keep Bibles in their desks and start building schools where the teachers put them on theirs. More homeschooling, the fastest growing education sector. Encourage that. Lou Perlman talks about how technology is, is, is in running the whole process and helping to bust out of the old uh, jack-in-a-box model of education. Uh, and a return to rate-based government education. If government wants to stay in the education business, let them charge at the door. So there are many other things that could be done. I haven't elaborated on a single one of these, but I wanted to show you by ticking off the list that there are indeed many things we can do as interim measures. I have one minute. What, how shall I spend it? <laughs> I think I'm going to go back to my mom. She'd say, if you're fighting hard for something, you need to look at what you're giving up. And what the folks, the worthy opponents that we're facing today are saying that what, what we have to, what we can't wait and that this is a necessary step. But what we're saying is it's not a step and it, it betrays our highest shared value. And that is responsibility given back to the parents where it belongs. And you can't get around that. When you want something to change, you can't turn to the agency that's caused it to exist in the first place. You mustn't turn to government to do it for you. It won't happen. It'll be more of the same. Um, do How much time do I have? 20 seconds. 20 seconds. I wanted to say, I, I'm, there, I want to add to the list of, of things that are already happening. Um, I think it's, it's clear that uh, the changing family structure 
the way that the, the, the family values are diminishing, et cetera, public schools are going to get worse and worse and worse, and therefore, the public is going to support them less and less. They're going to become more and more leery. Time is up. I hate that. <laughs> Well, when Marshall Fritz left Advocates for Self-Government to start a private school in the thoughts that that private school could become then a, a model for a national network of schools, I told Marshall that I thought he was making a big mistake. I said that that's probably exactly what the NEA is hoping, that somebody like a Marshall Fritz who's dynamic and an organizer and a hardcore libertarian would get out of the business of seriously challenging the public school monopoly and instead spend all of his time trying to start a little school. Maybe in 10 years or 20 years it would be successful and then maybe uh, he'd get two schools going by the year 2010 and so forth. I think this effort, unfortunately, suffers that same kind of consequence. I think the heads of the NEA would be absolutely delighted to see us all sitting here today arguing about whether we're going to privatize education in one step or two steps or three steps. I think the lessons from the last 50 years is we've been trying to make the leap to total privatization of education in a single jump, in a single bound, and we've all been hitting the bottom of that ravine. We haven't made significant progress towards separating schools and state. It's time to start looking for ways to climb down the one side, walk across the bottom, and walk up to where we want to go. Intermediate steps are necessary. If you look at any type of privatization, it doesn't occur in a single bound. It's almost inevitably a series of steps, an incremental process. That's what vouchers represent. Now, do vouchers actually represent progress toward complete separation? Absolutely. And this is what I was going to say at the end of my original opening remarks. The most important thing it does is it breaks up the most powerful opposition to vouchers, and that's the teacher unions and the managers, uh, the whole public school establishment. Um, Milton Friedman, let's see, in his uh, Washington Post essay, put it really well. Nothing else besides vouchers will destroy or even greatly weaken the power of the current educational establishment, a necessary precondition for radical improvement in our educational system. Somehow you've got to take down the teacher unions, which are right now the only thing standing between us and privatizing education. Vouchers do that. It's impossible to organize a, a wide series of private schools that are spontaneously evolving and innovating and competing against one another. Secondly, it dispels voucher programs, dispel a lot of anti-separation myths. Right now, the average public, judging by opinion polls, believes that the average parent is too stupid to choose a school for his own children. They think you can't hold private schools accountable for results. These are myths that prop up the current public school monopoly. And if you do debates with uh, the school teacher type people, which I do all the time, you know, I mean, the audience reacts to that. Some people are going to make wrong decisions. You know, they're on crack cocaine and their, parent, their kids are going to suffer. We, we got to get involved in that. Okay, get a private get get a voucher program going. Show that parents can intelligently choose schools. Show that the school quality is really high. And then finally, address the underlying factor of who funds these schools. See what vouchers do is admittedly they don't touch the funding of education. It's still government funding of education. And I have no doubt that that's wrong and we're going to move away from that. But what it does is it says we can privatize the delivery of the service, leave the funding in place for now, create a competitive marketplace get the independent, the individual uh, parents on the side of less regulation, and ultimately we defund the public education system. Thanks. Thanks very much to all, and now we'll open this up for questions and answers. Uh, uh, Rick, have, the, the, Rick. Yes.
we have people just line up here, and Eric has microphones stand, and it's the only fair way to do this. Okay? No, no, we've got Marshall. We're going to close. Marshall. We've got closing statements. Marshall. Okay. Let me. Rick, hold on. We, we, uh, but, Okay, I I see. I I uh, we have these we we have these spontaneous disorder at work here. I actually the the ground rules here is that we have approximately 23 minutes for questions and answers. At exactly 12:23, each side will have three minutes for a closing statement, and then we are out of here. So, first questioner, please. All right, my question is for uh, Doug Dewey. Uh, you uh, drew the analogy between the uh, voucher system and uh, food coupons, which I think is a valid analogy. And I would like to ask you, given that analogy, are you saying that you would like to see the uh, food stamp system replaced by a system in which people are given not food stamps, but go to government cafeterias where they're fed poisonous food that makes them sick? <laughs> Certainly not. I'm pointing out that there's no actual difference between a feeding center and a dependent portable entitlement. <laughs> uh, my question's for Joe. Uh, you used some examples in your speech. I wanted to present to you some information, real information, and ask you to, to tell me why these examples don't dispute what you said. The first one is food stamps. You stated that there's no regulation. In fact, in Texas, January 1st, we started the STAR program meant to weed out corrupt food sellers and the food stamp program. Since January 1st, more than 5,000 mom-and-pop stores have shut down because they were charging $3 for a bag of potato chips. Now, they might have been in the poor neighborhoods making the food available for the people who were collecting them and instead favor large grocery stores, much like fascism would always do, support the large businesses. Evidence that, in fact, regulation has followed food stamps and forced more and more and more rules and cost all of us more and more money. Why, my question to you is, why is that program not disputing what you just said? And secondly, we have a program now where Social Security pays families for disabled children diagnosed with ADD. Why has the rapid growth of drugging children, because of financial rewards provided by the government and the bureaucracies that follow it, why does that not dispute the dangers of vouchers? My understanding of the situation with food stamps is that the it's happening in Illinois as well. They just disqualified about uh, 200 uh, grocery stores from redeeming food stamps because they failed to meet minimum sanitary standards. I don't have any objection to that. And I think under a voucher program, you're going to see minimum standards. Uh, you see it in all the pilot programs. Uh, what, you know, the problem, the difficulty is, and what we've been trying to communicate is, uh, is this a step in the right direction? By moving the provision of education into the private sector, uh, at first you're going to get these little programs that restrict eligibility, that re restrict the schools that can participate, that put some uh, testing requirements, for example, things like that. Um, all of that is better than a completely socialized system, which is what we've got now. And it also puts in motion the dismantling of the main defenders of the current system, puts into motion a constituency of parents who actually demand choice and demand the, the liberty to determine what kind of schools they, they put their, uh, their children into. Um, finally, I think it was really interesting, Doug's immediate reaction to would you prefer a cafeteria over food stamps was absolutely not. And yet he claims that he's indifferent between the two. I think there's a big difference between the two. Uh, it's not where we want to go ultimately, but it's a hell of an improvement over what we've currently got. Pardon the French expression. I'm going to take the moderator's prerogative here and ask person to ask only one question of one part. 
make it as brief as possible because we have quite a line waiting and also ask the uh, responders to be as brief as possible so that we can make sure everybody gets a chance to ask a question quickly. Okay, uh, my question is for as many as, as wish to answer it. I, I'd like to propose a way of looking at this whole problem which seems to me to, to possibly ease the tensions between them and my question really is does it in fact ease the tensions between them. If we move from the status quo to a voucher system, that move will not be made in a political vacuum. And ways in which it could happen seem to me to be divisible into two scenarios. Scenario one, vouchers represent the libertarian extreme of acceptable alternatives. So that you, you, it's bipolar, status quo, and vouchers. So if we, if we move to vouchers under that system, all the, there'll be pressure to move back the other way, but no pressure coming from the other side of vouchers, as it were. Alternative two, we have a three-pronged system. There's status quo, there's vouchers, and there's complete separation. And if we, if we then make the same move, that is from status quo to vouchers, behold what a different situation we're in because now there is pressure coming from further to the libertarian side and which will at least countervail the pressure back towards the status quo and vouchers would no longer be perceived as an extreme, it would be perceived as a moderate position um, and the, the practical conclusion from this it seems to me is that maybe what we want to do is move to a vouchers but at the same time sustain and, and, and foment a strong separate, radical separation movement. What do you think? Absolutely. This is the end of the first tape on the voucher debate. The remainder of the question and answer period is on tape B.